How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Well, we're going to hear from God's word. You're going to hear from David in a moment. But Martin first is going to come and read us our reading and then pray for David. Thanks, Martin. So we're in Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, and this is Paul before the council. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler or of your people. But perceiving that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. David, come, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that David has put in in preparing this message for us, Lord. We thank you what you have shown him, what you have spoken to him, and what you have revealed to him, Lord. We pray, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, reveal it to us, Lord. Show it that we may grow, that we may grow closer to you and learn more and understand more of your kingdom and purposes that are applicable to us in our lives here today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you a question, and I don't want you hurriedly to get your mobile phones out and go to Google or any other data retrieval thing that you've got and get the answer. I want you just to think about it, right? Since the year 1740, daily records have been kept of the temperature in England. 
So for 200 and, what is it, 81 years, there's a record of the temperatures that occurred each day. And I want to ask you to think and tell me, not tell me, you're going to hold this in your mind for the present, in those 281 years, which was the coldest winter, let's say the coldest January and February in England, okay? I just want you to think, in 281 years, I'm going to ask you uh, a bit later, and I'll come back to that. And today, our passage is dealing with a trial between Paul the Apostle and the Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin and Tribunal of the Jews, who are headed by a high priest and have religious, civil, and criminal jurisdiction. I've always enjoyed watching good films where there are big trial scenes. And over my life, I can remember 12 Angry Men, The Cain Mutiny, um, uh, what's that? Um, A Few Good Men, and very recently, one that came out last year called The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And uh, I love to see the cut and thrust of the prosecution barristers and the responses of the defending counsel and it's very very clever and I love the words and the, and the quick thinking now we're, we're dealing with a trial today and we'll be coming to that in a minute but I want to answer I'm going to ask who I want you to raise your hands if you think the coldest year was between 1740 somewhere between 1740 and 1800 put your hands up Okay, that's about two or three of you. If you think it's between 1800 and 1850, one for that, 1850 and 1900, oh, three or four. Okay, in between 1900 and 1950, in between 1950 and 2000, oh, golly, very popular decision. And in between 2000 and 2021. Well, the popular decision wins it. It was 1963. And I endured it. In 1963, the sea at Hearn Bay froze for 1.8 miles. Somebody was able to drive a car across the Thames at Oxford. And... um, Yeah. And um, in uh, one of the temperatures recorded in Scotland was minus 22.1 degrees Celsius. So 1960 was a pretty cold winter. And guess what? It was my first year on a construction site up in Lincolnshire. <laughs> and things were very different then. Um, <clears throat> I shared an uninsulated wood cabin with a a, a colleague, and our boss had another uninsulated wood cabin um, next door to it, but separate. And uh, we didn't have any running water on the site. We had an Elson chemical toilet, and if you've had to use those, you know how disgusting they are as your normal toilets. 
um, for life I'm talking about. We had no flush toilets, no water, a very poor heating. Um, and what happened was that um, after two or three days of this, um, the contractor got rid of all of his men. He laid them off and said, when the weather gets better, you can come back again. Um, because you can't make concrete when it's freezing. Because the problem with um, water is when it freezes, it expands. And um, as it's drying in the wet concrete, it will expand. And then when it warms up again, you've got a little hole that's formed because the water hasn't filled it and the water will then either evaporate or be used in the, in the thing. And so you'll have a concrete with little minute holes right through it. And people have tested it, and if you make concrete in freezing weather, it will lose 50% of its strength. Now, of course, you can have um, industrial sites where they heat the sand and they heat the gravel and they heat the water and they have great insulation and it's put round and, and they can concrete. But normally for an ordinary rural site, you can't concrete in winter. And we had, um, I think, a, a two-month layoff um, in the winter of 1963. And um, <clears throat> I had a, a, a primer stove and a coffee percolator. And for the first week or two, we were doing the record drawings. You have to do records of all the work you've actually done. And we were doing that. But then we had nothing to do. And we sat there. And um, I, we used to bring in water and, and very nice coffee. And um, we would sit and talk and percolate our coffee. And... Um, and our, our, our senior engineer disapproved of us doing that, the, the boss. But when he smelt the coffee, he couldn't resist saying yes. So, so we got away with it. But then one day, he came into our office and he said, the Lincoln Assizes are sit in session. And he said to me, and I don't know why he chose me, he said, I suggest you go and see how justice is done in this country. Um, the sizes, they don't call it that now, they call it the Crown Court. So it was the Crown Court um, was sitting. And um, I was, um, with all my love of um, films of trials, I was absolutely delighted at this. So I drove to Lincoln and I went into the, into the gallery there, the visitor's gallery, and you could watch. And um, I was really enjoying it, seeing the skills of the lawyers um, dragging confessions out of the people that they were, um, uh, the people in the dock, the sharp, quick minds, both the prosecution and the defence lawyers, and the quick responses were um, were needed as the facts came out, and it was like being in a theatre and watching a live performance of great skill. And I guess I'd been there for about two hours or so watching this with with um, great delight, and then it suddenly occurred to me that what I was seeing was a spectacle of enjoyment for me was for those being tried the possibility of a life-changing experience with possible time in prison, um, perhaps even quite long sentences in prison. And my enjoyment was arising as the result of the tragedies of other people's lives. And I started to feel sick with myself that I had no compassion, no empathy. I was not involved and yet could be taking pleasure out of the mishaps of other people's lives. 
and I walked out. I couldn't, I couldn't stand any more of it. Of course, the courts are doing a good and necessary job and essential for justice. For those who are not involved but who wish to see how justice is administered, it's excellent that you have um, a gallery and that people can see how the courts are doing their thing and it's open for inspection. But it's not, it's not useful as a spectator sport. And while I can watch these films and think this is not real, you know, and it's just clever, when it's actually real, I found I couldn't, I couldn't cope with it. I couldn't cope that I could be sort of having a good, enjoyable time at the expense of other people. As I say, we spent those months um, drinking coffee and sitting in our, until the weather got, weather got better. And my assistant engineer, who we talked and talked and talked, became a Christian. Not my assistant, he was, he was the other assistant engineer. So, so something came out of that very icy cold winter. Now, as we read this passage today, Paul is in a court being tried for his life. Probably none of us here in the UK will ever be tried in a court for our Christian beliefs. This wasn't true for our predecessors. There are many, many um, cases of Christians who were martyrs for their faith in England and Wales and Scotland as well. But many, many cases of that. And there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is written in sort of um, not easy to read English, but lists a lot of these. And in Oxford, there's a memorial to two people who were burnt at the stake. Um, it's it's a, a big memorial right towards the centre of Oxford. And it's where Nicholas Ridley, who was the Bishop of London, and uh, Hugh Latimer, who was the Bishop of Wor Worcester, were together at, at this place where they've got the memorial, burnt at the stake. And there's that famous statement that comes out of it, where out of the flames, Hugh Latimer cries out to his fellow sufferer, and he says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as shall never be put out. You know, I, I think that's a fantastic statement to be saying that in the midst of being um, burnt to death. There are Christian believers who at this very present time throughout the world are facing trials and being tried for death. And I get quite a lot of information by mobile phone from overseas. And, and there, there's one case at this very current moment where two Christian believers have been arrested and their mobile phones are being searched to see if they will give the numbers of other Christians who they've had contact with. And they probably face the death sentence. So, I mean, we are very fortunate, but what Paul was undergoing is being undergone by many of our brothers and sisters at this present time. And in our passages there can, that we're reading at present, there can be a confusion of names. And they talk about the high priest being Ananias, right? The high priest was the most senior religious leader among the Jews, um, and he's meant, they're mentioned in the Gospels quite a lot. 
Now, <clears throat> the first one who's mentioned is a man called Annas, but the Romans removed him from his office in AD 15, right? Um, he was obviously corrupt or something like that, and they removed him from his office. Um, but he still stayed on and had great influence. And it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who, who became high priest from AD 19 to AD 36. So at the trial of Jesus, in John's Gospel, they mentioned both Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the actual legal high priest, but Annas, because he'd been the high priest and because he was the father-in-law of um, Caiaphas, has influence at the time, quite serious influence at the time. However, in this trial of Paul, we're now in AD 57, 21 years since Caiaphas stopped being high priest. And the high priest is a man called Ananias. Now, again here, it's very easy to get a confusion of names. There are three Ananiases in the Gospel, in the Acts of the Apostles. The first one comes in um, Acts chapter 5, where you've got Ananias and Sapphira, and they, they go and sell some land, and they come and tell um, the apostles, here we are, we're giving this for the common purse, really. And what they've done is they've kept part of the money for themselves. Now, they were allowed to do that, but because of their lying, saying that this is the money we got, and this is for it, it all, um, God seemed, judged them, and, and they both, both he and his wife. But that's the first Ananias. The second Ananias occurs in Damascus. Saul is on the way to Damascus to capture Christians and um, put them in prison and take them back to Jerusalem for trial there. And uh, Saul has the amazing experience of meeting the Lord, and he's blinded. And then the Lord comes to this man called Ananias and says, I want you to go and pray for Paul in Straight Street. And let me tell you, Straight Street still exists in, um, well, I don't know after the recent wars it is, but I was actually, I don't know if I've told this story before, I was actually um, in Damascus on an engineering trip, and the first, as I, I was asked to fly from Riyadh to Damascus, and I was in the taxi going to Damascus, and I said to the taxi driver, is there still a Straight Street in Damascus? And... Um, he looked at me as though I was mad. And I thought, oh, well, it was in the Bible, and it's, uh, it's obviously not there anymore. And um, I did three or four days' work in Damascus, and then on the last day, because I, my plane was late, they said, let's take you and show you. And the chap who was driving me around said, and this is Straight Street. It's where the Christian believers live. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> 2,000 years on, and the Christians are there. And at the end of Straight Street is a, a chapel called St. Paul's Chapel. So, anyway, um, Paul is now on trial, and the, the high priest is the third Ananias we get to. He's called Ananias. Sorry, one second. Other records, primarily of Josephus, state that this Ananias, the high priest was one of the most disgraceful profaners of the Holy Office. He seized the tithes that people had given to the temple for himself. He was a greedy, rapacious man, very wealthy, and used violence and assassination to achieve his ends. And when Paul starts his defense, 
he says that he looked directly at the council and says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. And Ananias, this high priest, commands the people near to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Why did Ananias order this instruction? Was it because the words Paul used were brethren, um, which put him on an equal footing with them? The normal opening when addressing the Sanhedrin would be rulers of the people and elders of Israel. But Paul in the past had studied with Gamaliel. Um, he'd been their special envoy to arrest Christians in Damascus and bring them bound to Jerusalem. He'd been a highly regarded Pharisee and could have been deemed to have been on an equivalent standing with many of the people in the Sanhedrin. You've got to remember, this is uh, 20 to 30 years on since, um, since Paul was... I think it was AD 34 that Paul was on the Damascus Road. It's AD 57 now, so it's 23 years later. So many of the people in the Sanhedrin now were probably contemporaries of Paul. And so when he's saying brethren to them, it's almost that sort of thing. Was it because Annas thought Paul should have addressed him with more respect? Was it because Paul seemed to have no fear of the authority? He looked intently at them. And so Ananias does this thing and he orders Paul to be struck on the mouth. Now in ordering this, Ananias himself broke the law because in Deuteronomy it says, the law is laid down, that only after the judgment and the, pers and the person has been found guilty can you use corporal punishment on them. And that Paul had not been found guilty, unless Ananias in his mind was thinking Paul was already guilty, um, and he has him struck. Paul's response is to this is to state that God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you trying me according to the law and violating the law yourself? Now, for Jews, to touch a dead person made them unclean. And so what they used to do was paint the tombs with whitewash so that there was no way, if you were visiting, that you could accidentally touch um, a dead person, right? It, it gave you a safeguard. And so some people say, do you think Paul is saying to Ananias, you, you're a whitewashed tomb, you know? You're spiritually dead inside, but you're, you're showing white. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. There's a, another thing where you get crumbling walls were stabilized with a coat of, of white paint, like our crumb, <laughs> no, of whitewash, like our crumbling window, wooden windows. Uh, we can <laughs> rub down and stabilize them with paint. Well, the, the same principle as that. Um, and, and is Paul really saying to him, inside you're crumbling and useless and not the strength you should be and you, you're just beginning, you've got the outside look. You're like a whitewashed wall. You may look good, but underneath you're crumbling. 
And the bystanders say to Paul, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I was not aware that he was the high priest. And Paul continues and says, it is written, you shall not speak evil or curse a ruler of your people. And that um, Paul is quoting Exodus 22 and verse 28. Now, some people think that because Paul had been away from Jerusalem for so long, he may not have had access to the high priest and so did not know him. Or maybe at this hastily convened trial, which because the trial was brought about by the Roman commander getting them to come, um, Ananias hadn't had, not An, yeah, Ananias hadn't had time to wear the, the formal clothes that the, or vestments that the high priest wore. And so he, he was not so easily recognizable as the high priest. Or Paul knew the reputation of Ananias and he may have been seeing this man sitting here. I never knew a man like that could be the high priest of Israel. It's difficult to know what he's actually really saying, you know? I didn't know. Some people say Paul couldn't have not known who the high priest was, um, and so they're looking for something else. What, what are behind the words? You pay your money and you, um, you take your choices. What Paul was apologizing war was for the role and not for the person. The role had the authority of God, the role of high priests. That was a God-designed thing in that time. But it didn't, the, the person necessarily didn't. And we, you know, we have exactly the same thing in the military today. You can get somebody who's been in the army and who's become, let's say, after 22 years in the army, he's a sergeant major, you know, very experienced, knows everything there is to know about the army. And then you get um, a young second lieutenant, and he's um, age 19, and he's um, just been commissioned, and the, this 40-year-old um, sergeant major meets this young 19-year-old, and he has to salute him. And why is that? And it's not because the young 19-year-old is, is highly experienced and knowledgeable and is worthy of a salute. What the sergeant major is doing, what the military will teach you, is you're recognizing the commission of the monarch. And this young man has been commissioned by the monarch to be a second lieutenant. I know this because it happened to me when I was 18. And uh, if you look up in my records, you'll see there's the Queen's Commission <laughs> for Mr. D. F. H. Pharaoh uh, when I was 18 and knew nothing. Um, but it's, it's a sort of system where what you recognize is the role, not the person. The person can be bad or not, but the role is the Queen's Commission. That, that's in our military. And this was the thing here where Paul was saying um, the role was... Um, worthy of honor, but not necessarily the person who is fulfilling that role. The court trying Paul was the Sanhedrin. Now, I keep reading that the Sanhedrin either has 23 members or 71. I've never been able to find out why, you know. All I can assume is that there is, maybe it's a core of the Sanhedrin is 23, um, 
And when they get the full Sanhedrin, it's, it's up to 71. And it was a mixture of Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees believed that only the first five books of Moses, that's from Genesis to Deuteronomy, comprised the scriptures. And they didn't recognize any of the later books of history or prophets or anything as being the scriptures. The, the Pharisees recognized the whole of what we would call the Old Testament as the scriptures. And they had very different beliefs. The Sadducees, and it says this in the text, didn't believe in angels, heaven, resurrection of the dead. While Paul, or, or the Pharisees, believed in all of these things. And particularly because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul was, you know, very committed to the resurrection of the dead. But in the time of we're talking about, Sadducees seemed to have the most political power. Um, they had much more in, in, amongst the Romans they seemed to have um, the political power in the society there was probably little love lost or tolerance between Sadducees and Pharisees and Paul seeing the split in the council proclaimed that he was not only a Pharisee but he was the son of a Pharisee as well and he was on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead and of course, that's what he was on trial for, because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And the amazing thing is, when you get factions, how factions can turn. And what you get is, is a very typical thing of a society. Suddenly, the Pharisees, or some of them at least, claim Paul as one of their own. He's one of our guys, right? And maybe... A spirit or an angel spoke to him and told him all these things. And it, it's absolutely incredible that in the midst of this trial, just by that making that statement, Paul causes such dissension and such dissension that violence breaks out. And uh, it, it's hard to believe that that could actually happen, isn't it? And so the Roman commander this, comes down and he has to separate him because he's afraid they'll actually tear um, Paul to pieces. Do you ever get so vehement as that? Can, can, can things that affect your beliefs actually cause you to want to indulge in violence? Be careful if you, if you can. But in some ways it's, it, it does indicate the fervor of your belief. I mean, they believed this with all their hearts, that they were willing to do violence to anyone who didn't believe um, what they were. Have you noticed how calm Paul manages to be throughout this trial and in all the other trials he undergoes? Did he experience what his Jesus had promised to his disciples? And Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, but before all these things, they will lay hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will be an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom 
which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. When you're on trial for your faith, the Lord promises that he will give you the words, the vocabulary, whatever you need to speak in your defense or to speak out, and it will be a testimony to Jesus. But then Jesus also, at that very same time, in the same passage, goes on to state some of the things that will happen to them or happen to us. There's no promise of a safe haven on earth while we live on earth. You've only got to examine what tradition says happened to nearly all the apostles, where they died, how they died. But what is not tradition is in Acts 12, verse 2, where it says, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. No safe haven promised if you're following the Lord. Wonderful things promised, but actually no safe haven in the midst of persecution. And many, many Christians absolutely know the reality of that at this time. Kurds, um, and, and, and I'm trying to think, what is the group of people that the, the Turks are so keen to say was not a genocide? Um, yes, the Armenians. I read a book by an Armenian of that time, and uh, it was absolutely horrendous what happened to the Christians at that time. No, you might have thought, no safe protection at that time for many of them. Many of them died and saw their families die, and few lived out of that time. We're not promised safe havens. We're promised that the Lord will be with us in wherever we are. The final verse of the passage we've got today is where the Lord appears by night, where, standing by Paul's side, he says, I would love Luke to have been a bit thinking, you know, what did the Lord look like? Um, could he be touched? Um, was it like a vision of Jesus? Was it a, a physical manifestation of Jesus? Uh, but obviously Luke thinks that my curious questions are not worth answering, and he, he doesn't answer them. But the Lord appears to Paul and he says to him this, Take courage, as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must at Rome also. Now what Jesus is saying to Paul is take courage. Do not let what has happened frighten you, nor let what may potentially happen in the future cause you to fear. No fear of the future. That's a, that's a great thing to have, isn't it? Uh, Fear can cripple us, but resisting and having no fear in the future, knowing that we are the Lord's people and what will happen, we may, may face all sorts of things, but fear is not going to cripple us. Then he says, as you have witnessed to me at Jerusalem, you must witness at Rome also. Thus Jesus is saying to encourage him that what happened to him is because of his witnessing of Jesus. Do you remember Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners? And why does he, de he describes himself as that? Because he persecuted Christians. And he'd spent his young life hounding Christians, arresting them, having them in, go to prison. 
and he thought of himself as the chief of sinners, the one who had tried to destroy the Christians and tried to destroy the church. And Jesus is saying, Paul is going to be remembered not as the chief of sinners because he persecuted, Jesus is remembering him because of his witnessing. So that you don't have to remember that what's in the past has been forgiven. Now, and the next thing he's saying to this in this one sentence is your testimony is not yet finished. There is more to come in Rome. Do you remember when he's on, um, nearly two years later, when he's sailing across to Rome and the storm hits the ship and for, I think it's 14 days, they're in this storm and they don't, they're at sixes and sevens and they're all fearing death. But Paul had this one sure thing. I'm not going to die because I haven't witnessed at Rome yet and I'm going to witness at Rome. And he's able by his calmness, by his prayer, by his speaking to the sailors and taking good practical um, things of what needs to be done and not letting the sailors escaping, escape in the lifeboats. He's managed to get them all to, and, and the sea crashes, and the, uh, sorry, the sea crashes against the boat and the boat crashes, you know the story, and they land on Malta. And, uh, but not one of the sailors or the people on board are killed. Paul could go into that thing knowing that God had got work for him in Rome and he knew that he wasn't going to die in a shipping accident in the middle of the Mediterranean. The promise to each of us is that when we face trial for Jesus, he'll guide us what to say. And also, what Jesus remembers about us is not our sins when we have confessed them, and things that, uh, where we feel we have let the Lord down, where we have, have done all sorts of things which are maybe hidden from our friends, from our loved ones, when they are confessed, they no longer are the, the tool to wound us. But, but what is going to be remembered is, do we have a heart to witness to others about Jesus? As I say, I look back on my time in that Lincolnshire cold shed uh, with perhaps the greatest thing I, and I don't think I achieved it, was that my fellow guy became a Christian, not in the midst of that cold winter, but some months later. The most amazing thing, I kept trying to invite him to evangelistic meetings that would uh, convert him when the church had special speakers, and he could always never come, never come, never come. And one day we were just in the shed today getting ready to leave work, and he said to me, what are you doing tonight, David? And I said to him, I'm going to the church prayer meeting. He said to me, can I come with you? <laughs> really, the last thing I would have thought as an evangelistic tool <laughs> was him coming to the church prayer meeting. But he, he, he came to the church prayer meeting and um, a friend of mine looking by said, David, when I saw you'd brought him in, I knew you weren't going to pray tonight. I didn't want to. He said he, he needed to feel safe that he didn't have to actually pray in, in the midst of this prayer meeting. Um, but he then became a Christian. He started coming to church, started getting involved and became um, a follower of Jesus.
Um, whatever situation we go through, whether it takes a long time or not, you will be having an effect on the people around you. Whether it's your people at work, whether it's your people in your home, whatever it is, you are a witness for Jesus. Once you've got the hallmark of Jesus in your life, where you are belonging to Jesus, you cannot but witness to others in what you say, in what you do, and how you are. And sometimes we never ever see the fruits, and sometimes we see the fruits quite quickly. But it's, um, we just have to keep on plodding on.